0: Let's try to look at the the challenge of Yom Kippur and see if we can perhaps get something a little bit um, beneath the surface. What exactly are we, what are we driving for in the work of Yom Kippur? Maybe we could we could we could begin like this. The the sources say the Gemara says that the one day a year, Yom, namely Yom Kippur, on that day, your lowest self is not free to attack. That means you are a complete. You live in a transcendent zone where your higher self can express itself in a way that no other day of the year makes possible. The source for this is that the, the word hasatan, which means the, that specific energy, which is the, the lower self, the body and its cravings, the vested interests, those things that pull you down into the world of the physical, the material, the animal, that word in Hebrew adds up to 364. And since there are 365 days in the year, so it follows that there is one day when you are not subject to that force. One day a year. And that day is Yom Kippur. I us understand what it means exactly. But it seems that there's one day a year that you are free from the grip of the things that pervert your judgment and pervert your, one's, one's spirituality. Free from that. The question is, what does this mean exactly? What does it mean to be free of this, these, these forces? And the second question is, is it true? Is it true? Is it apparent that it's true? Do you feel on Yom Kippur that you have no... You don't feel hungry? You don't feel the body speak? That you're completely divorced from, detached from your your lower self? You feel like an angel on Yom Kippur? You really experience that? Not so clear? Uh, Maybe I'm speaking to the wrong... Maybe you feel it so obviously that you... But there 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 is occasional individual who doesn't feel that plainly. Okay, what's the meaning of this? What does it mean that there's a Torah guarantee here? I mean, it's, become, it's not a, a, a metaphorical illusion. There's something very deep here that, that one is detached from one's lower self on Yom Kippur. So why, ha, why is it not tangibly felt? Or it's difficult to feel? What does that mean exactly? Let's try to approach the subject and see. There's, there are amazing secrets here and amazing depth. Inexpressible really, the depth here. Certainly not in one session that we can really plumb, but let's try to at least point the direction for ourselves. First of all, you know that the ability to feel this transcendence, the ability to feel that the body doesn't speak on Yom Kippur, the first key here is that it's dependent on the effort that's made. That's the first thing. It doesn't mean that once automatically, on the contrary, there's a spiritual principle that if you handle these things wrongly, you feel worse. If right? you feel worse, you can be brought down. As a spiritual potential, a voltage that's high, if misused, can harm just as much as a physical voltage misused. Yeah, that's the rule in the world. If you have electric electric current, for example, the more you have, the more you can power, the more you can do. The more you misuse, the more dangerous. Therefore, you have to connect it correctly. How do you connect correctly to Yom Kippur? Because what is the work you have to do to make yourself <coughs> to make it relevant? this ability to connect to or to disconnect from the body. So there are two two essential elements here. Before we can even begin to speak about transcending the physical and moving into that rarefied zone of spirituality where impossible things become possible, which is what Yom Kippur is all about. There are two prerequisites. One is the practicality. It means you have to observe the mitzvah of the day. The mitzvah of the day is to physically and literally detach from the body. The miss on Yom Kippur is that you have to, there are five things one has to desist from, right? Five things you have to separate from. Five things you're not allowed to do on Yom Kippur. The inner work is the work of Tvila, of Tshuva, Davening, prayer, repentance, that means self-analysis and self-refinement, correction. But the practicality, that means the body has to be handled as well. And the way the body's handled on Yom Kippur is that it's, it's disconnected. The five things you can't do on Yom Kippur are all things that are giving the body its its, its yeah, giving it its 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 role in pleasure and and expression. Yeah, on Yom Kippur, what you can't do is eat and drink, wash the body. We're not talking about yeah, not being clean. That's not the point. But the point it's not whether you're clean or not clean. It's the attention, the luxuriant attention to the body, that is involved in washing, for the sake of of that sensation. Not allowed to do. Anoint the body. It means there's a there's a pampering of the body in that sense, not, not allowed, marital intimacy, and wearing shoes, if you have to step out of your shoes, step out of leather shoes. What's the meaning of these? What's, what's the concept? First of all, this is the practicality that needs to be done. The mistake here is that people think that it's a, a suffering. I have a very interesting correspondence with a, a Buddhist Jew, person who was a, previously a Buddhist minister, priest. Gradually, made very significant steps back to Jewish roots. Very insightful individual. And one of the questions that he that he writes that that. Jews from that background often, often bother them is that why do we, why do we Jews enshrine suffering? And we see suffering as a gives Yom Kippur as an example. It's a serious error. Yom Kippur is not for suffering. On the contrary. Yom Kippur is not, not to sense a suffering. Tisha is a time for feeling a certain pain. That's a fast in pain because of the sense of tragedy that we carry with us. Yom Kippur is not suffering. Yom Kippur is supposed to be an elation Why does the Torah say that there should be an Inui? Inui means a suffering on Yom Kippur. It doesn't mean a suffering, it means a a beating down of the body. It means imposing on the body a certain restriction. The body is meant on this day to suffer to the extent that it's extinguished. But the purpose of extinguishing the body is to give a sense of freedom and elation to the Neshama. On the contrary, on the contrary. One of the great men of this generation, one of the great rabbis, sages, Somebody spoke to him about fasting on Yom Kippur. He said, Of course we eat on Yom Kippur. We're the tiniest. That's what he said. We eat the fast. It's not a day of fasting, it's a day of. It's a yantav, day of rejoicing. On well, the contrary, it's a day where you don't. The way they put it in the yeshivas, yeah, there's the a certain jargon that they used in the yeshiva world. The way they put it is very beautiful. They say like this On, on B'Av, the day of Jewish mourning, who could eat? Who could eat? On Yom Kippur, who needs to? The sensation of Yom Kippur should be such that you feel you don't need to eat. There's a freedom of the neshama, right? Fasting, fasting, there are two ways you can fast. One is to feel the sorrow and the suffering and the pain of tragedy. You can't bring yourself to eat. But there's another kind of fasting, and that is a denial of the body. There's one day a year when you leap out, you transcend the body. It's not because because you want to suffer, it's because you live in a world where you're eating something else. Let's try to understand this a bit more deeply. Let's go one stage beneath the surface. What is eating? What is the connection here? What's eating? What is marital connection? What is, what is wearing shoes? What's the connection? Here? First of all, there's a very deep Kabbalistic issue here that there are five levels of expression of the soul. Can't go into the details now, but there are five expressions of the soul. The lowest one is called Nefesh. The next one is called Ruach. The third one is called three There's two above that. Deep mystical subject. These five things on Yom Kippur, each of them is a stepping out of one level of the soul. All five levels of neshama are being extracted from the body. Each one invests the body in a different place, connects with a different aspect of body. And these five levels of detachment, each one is specifically targeted against one level of the soul, detaching it from its place in the body. So that the neshama in general is able to hover, or in the mystical terminology, it's able to... It surrounds the body. It hovers above it. They're not limited by the body. How does it work? Again, we don't have time to go through... All the levels in detail, but just to give <coughs> a beginning of a clue, what is the meaning of fasting? What is what is the meaning of this? So everything in Torah is very specific. It's not a question of finding some wo- some way of feeling pain. These are very very specifics with surgical precision. These things are to be applied. <coughs> Eating is the f- is the energy. Food is that creation that keeps the soul connected to the body. Why do we eat in the first place? Why do we eat? Why exactly are we created eating? Because once a few billion years ago, when you were an amoeba, you know you you sort of ingested slime, and so now you know after a few million years of bumping into into each other in the trees, you know that's not the concept. We are spiritual beings. We were created exactly the way we need to be because each feature of our being has a particular spiritual meaning. Eating, eating is the is the concept of. The body is created in such a way that to keep the soul in the body requires glue. It requires an uh, attaching mechanism. The reason that you need an attaching mechanism is because the soul and the body are opposites. They reject each other. They they, they magnetically repel each other. The body is an animalistic, finite being that contains its own excrement, its own finite limitations, and the neshamah is an emanation of something divine. These two are not easily put together. These repel each other as, as classic opposites. Food is that, eating is that special creation that, is the, that, causes, that brings about the bond of these two dimensions. If you don't eat, what happens is there's a distraction where the, where the neshama becomes less connected to the body. You become faint. If you don't eat long enough, you lose consciousness. If you don't eat beyond that, you actually have a permanent con- disconnection. Food is that which fuels the, b- the body to the extent that it keeps the neshama in. There are many applications of this. I mean, you eat with your mouth. Mouth. that part of the body is the organ of connection it's the organ that is the, the manifestation in the body of connection of opposites that's why the mouth has three functions all of which are connection of opposites when one organ in the body in the deeper wisdom again this is taught when one part of the body has more than one function those functions must all be identified otherwise they would have separate sources the mouth has three functions eating, speaking and kissing what's the spiritual connection here? Eating is that energy, that, that, that e- entity, which is enabling the soul to remain connected to its opposite, which is the body. Speaking is the taking of a rarefied spiritual concept and putting it into physical expression. That's what speaking means, apart from which it's a connection between people. When the Gemara wants to talk about marital intimacy, it uses speaking as a euphemism. Not just to be clean and elevated and refined, but because there's a very deep connection there. The speaking is a deep connection. A kissing, a kiss, a kiss is the natural human expression of of, of connection. And even though it doesn't make any sense, there's no there's no sense to it. On the contrary, it's it's gruesome and, and, and dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but we've been created in such a way that opposites, yeah, and the mouth is that organ of connection, and therefore and therefore eating is a manifestation of this. And there are many other expressions of this. <coughs> The sacrifices, for example. Yeah. sacrifice. What's a sacrifice? The mystical sources say that Nefeshachayim brings it. Sacrifices are the concept of the world eating. Just like the body has a soul investing it, the world has a thing, has a has divine immanence inside the world. And those two are opposites, and so they need to remain connected. And the way you connect those is by offering korbonis. That's why the sacrifices that are brought in the temple in Jerusalem, they are all referred to by the terms of meals. Eskorbanilachmi, the sacrifices which are my bread. The altar is called Shulchan Gavoya, Hashem's table. Many laws of the sacrifices connected to the, the, the laws of eating, of meals. And then Eveshahim explains that bringing a sacrifice is like feeding the world. That means that when, you, yeah, when, those, when that element of food is, is brought, it is the energy that keeps, as it were, the Shkuna in the world. Of course, you have noticed yeah, You know we don't do that anymore. We don't have korbanis anymore. And you see how faint the world is. All we have as an equivalent is another work of the mouth, namely tefillah, which is another work of connection. It's using the power of speech to reconnect. So we have now... (coughs) Incidentally, where are the Korbanas brought, where are sacrifices brought, in the temple. What is the temple? Again, it's the same three facets. What happens in the temple is the three functions of the mouth. What the mouth is in the body, the mikdash, the temple is in the world. What happens in the temple? There's eating namely the sacrifices are <coughs> offered and absorbed, assimilated, ingested. They're speaking. That's where the voice of Hashem is heard from between the two Kribim. It's the place of speaking. And the Gemara says it's the place where heaven and earth kiss. The Nashki Shemaya of Aradadi, where heaven and earth kiss each other, meaning that the, the internal dimension, the transcendent dimension, <coughs> connects. Right? That's why in the Orin, on top of the Oren you have a male and female angelic figure that are embracing each other. All the same idea. This is, this is the concept of eating. On Yom Kippur, when you desist from eating, it's not the question that you are, make yourself suffer because you're hungry. What you're doing is you're allowing the soul to distract itself from the body. That's what fasting means. Fasting is not just a way of self-immolation and, you know, we Jews like to suffer. So we get, on the contrary, we like to eat as well. It's not like that. The concept is that when you want to aid the Neshama to feel free, so what you do is you stop eating for a while. It enables a certain distraction. Of course, the wrong way to handle it is to think about your stomach. To, to fast and think about your body is exactly the wrong thing to do. The whole idea is to free the neshama so you can live in the neshama. But of course, where we are so trapped in our bodies that we, when we do this, what happens is the neshama is distracted out and you forget about it. And all you think about is your body more than on a normal day. It's completely wrong. The whole idea is to be able to feel your neshama, to feel your soul on this day, expressed, not limited by the body. What are shoes? Let's take another example. See, it's the same idea. What are shoes? What does it mean? Take off your shoes. What does that mean? Shoes are where the body, again, it's a long long, detailed subject, but very briefly. The concept of shoes is that the five parts of the soul, the lowest one is called the nafesh. The, the, the unique feature of the nafesh, this lowest part of the soul dimension, is that it's where the spiritual aspect of the person connects to the physical aspect. There's a part of the soul, whose function it is, to provide that marvelous and miraculous connection between a spiritual, ethereal, infinite entity called the soul, and the finite, material entity called the body. There's a special spiritual thing that does that, it's called the nefesh. And the nefesh is, kabbalistically, it's the lowest part of the soul, it's the part of the soul, the neshama, that fits into the body. Only the lowest part fits in. Most of the neshama is above you, beyond you, which means... Of course this is all borrowed language, but what it means is that it's transcendent, it's higher, it cannot fit into a body, it doesn't it's not bound by the by the material borders of the body. The lowest part called the nephesh fits in somehow into the body. Certain part of the body is connected to the blood. Whole discussion where and how. But the rest is expanded beyond the body. Listen well to this. The nephesh is to the body what the feet are to the shoes. The shoes are to the body what the body is to the soul. Again. The body holds the neshamah by engaging only its lowest part. The shoes engage the body by making contact only with the lowest part of the body. Your shoes carry you over rough ground like your body carries you through the world. There's a part of you that contacts the earth. That's the lowest, most distant part, the part furthest from consciousness that contacts the earth. And without shoes, you cannot move through the world. cannot move through the world. With shoes on, you make contact and it's only the lowest part. And therefore, the shoe is to the body what the body is to the neshama. Incidentally, the word shoe in Hebrew means to lock. The word for a shoe in Hebrew, now means that the place where you're locked in. <coughs> and that's of course why, in Jewish thinking, shoes are impure. If you touch your shoes, you not. Yeah. If you touch your shoes, you have to wash your hands before you daven or before you learn, because the shoes are like a dead body. They're like a corpse. They're like a When you see shoes in Torah? Think about it. every example, you'll see the same thing. Shoes. The priests, the Kohanim, when they work in the base of Mikdash, they have no shoes on. They, they dressed fully, but shoes have to be bare feet. Why? Because they're, walk, they're working in a domain here that is halfway between heaven and earth. To lift themselves into that, they lift themselves out of their shoes. When Hashem appears to speak to a prophet, what does He tell him before you begin speaking to him? Take your shoes off. Take your shoe off or your shoes. Interesting. Look it up yourself. You see, the Malbim explains why by Moshe Rabbeinah and by Yeshua, one was one shoe, one was two shoes. I'm not going to go into that now. But then the Novi must stand barefoot. Step out of his shoes. Why is that necessary? Because to connect with a higher world, you have to lift yourself out of this one. The two are in conflict. You have a mitzvah called Chalitza. You know what Chalitza is? <coughs> Chalitza is a mitzvah that if a woman, if a man dies <coughs> without children, There's a mitzvah for his wife to marry his brother. Normally, marrying a brother in law is completely forbidden. Completely forbidden. But in one unique circumstance, where the the husband, yeah, this man had no children, in that unique circumstance, the Torah obliges the woman to marry the brother in law. That means the brother of the late husband. That's what she has to do. If she cannot do this mitzvah, cannot fulfill the mitzvah, they do a ceremony called chalitza. What is chalitza? She faces the man, takes off his shoe, and spits. What does that mean? What 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 is this ancient custom? What does it mean? It's done. It's done today. In fact, today we only do this because today, for the last thousand years, we have outlawed the mitzvah of yibum. The Torah says that you do yibum in certain circumstances. We rule that we're not capable of doing it anymore. And today, instead of performing the mitzvah of yibum, marrying the brother, we choose the alternative that the Torah provides, which is chalitza. It's done today. The London Mason about two a year performed. You need all the circumstances. A brother has no children, and so forth. What does this mean? What does it mean? What what is taking off the shoe? We have to talk about spitting also. Also has to do with the mouth. Expectorating that which comes from within the life zone of the person externally also needs discussion. We can't deal with everything at once. But what's the meaning of taking off the shoe? The concept of yibum again, on the deeper plane, according to the deeper sources, why does this woman marry a brother which is normally forbidden? The concept is because the husband had no children. That means he has no ongoing... It's not, yeah. You know, if you want to put it in, in the terms we're using this evening, children are considered to be your feet. You know that? Children are your feet. Your children are your feet. The Gemon says that a son is called Bra avur. A son is a foot of his father. Why? Because it's not your feet carry you through the world. Your children carry you through the world of time. You walk on them as it were. Your feet take you where your body could not get otherwise. You need a means of transport. Like Gemma. Your children take you in time to a dimension that you will not extend to. This man left without feet. It means he died, had no children. There's no ongoing connection of that soul through the world. Continuing that chain of messianic connection. So what happens? He's alive, marries someone else in the family to bring down again a spark of the same original soul. Kabbalistically, the child that's born is a Gilgul, a reincarnation of the husband who died. That's why Yibum is considered such tremendous righteousness on the part of the woman. Because she marries the brother, and being being that is connected to the same source, it could even be the father. In the case of Tamar, for example, do you remember? She was unable to marry, she married one brother, he died, no children. She married the second brother, he died as well. Unable to marry the third, Shayla, so she married the husband, Yehuda. The reason is, because in that family, this is where that soul energy is transmitting itself. So attaching, again, to a source in the same family brings down that soul again. There's no greater gift a woman can give to us than bringing him back to the world, as it were. I mean, you see this very clearly. I mean, in the case of Tamar, for example, Tamar married one brother, yes, heir or and shall. She married the first one, he died. So she married the second brother, but he died too. So when she married Yehuda, the Kabbalistic question is, the Kabbalists asked the question, which of the previous two husbands is going to come down? And Tamar had twins. <laughs> Peretz and Zerach. Huh? You see, it's very clear, very clear. What is Yibum? What is Chalitza? Chalitza is that if they don't do this mitzvah, she takes off his shoe. What what is she saying to him? What is she saying to him? When Ruth went to Boaz, right? She didn't speak a word. She lay down on his feet and took off his shoe. He knew exactly what she meant. That you are the relative has to marry me, and she indicated that simply by taking off his shoe. What is meant here? What's meant is that. What she's saying to him is, if you will not perform this mitzvah with me and bring down that soul again to the world, what you are doing is you're keeping a soul out of a body. The symbol of that is keeping the foot out of the shoe. Do you understand? She takes the shoe off the foot to indicate to this man in practical, graphic terms what he is doing. He's not giving, and you're not giving, not not allowing a body to become the vessel of an neshama. The perfect symbol of that in in spiritual terms is to separate the foot from the shoe, to show that on Yom Kippur, when you step out of your shoes, what you're doing is, you're distracting that lowest level of the soul from the body entirely. That's what you're doing. <coughs> that's, that's the significance. And therefore, this is a day where, where it's not a question of suffering. It's a question of disciplining the body and beating the body down, as it were, so that and if you don't do that, there's no chance. This 364 that expresses itself and the one day you're able to transcend that But you have to, be, you have to make the preparation. You have to be relevant to that. It has to be relevant to you. The way it's relevant is first of all practicality. You have, to, you have to discipline the body that way. What is marital intimacy? Again, we can't go into the details. What is that exactly? What is that? <laughs> Again, that is a bringing a sensation. It's a bringing of the sensation of the next world into this world. That's what it is. It's a it's an energy that is generating a sense of endpoint, of arriving at destination in the deepest sense possible. It's very hard to go into detail. That's its attraction. Why do you think the whole of society runs on that? Everything. Entertainment, literature. There's not a a thing (coughs) that doesn't involve that area. Because the most potent experience of that thing, again, it's that connection. It's that connection of spirit and body. It's in the deepest possible sense. This This is a day when that's disconnected. You go through all the five. This is the. These are the, This is what's being done. So the first work is the first work of Yom Kippur, right? Is to practically, in practical terms, you have to lift above the physical to lift at least that little bit of assistance that the neshama needs. A day of reveling in and enjoying physicality is not a day to allow the neshama to float above. That's the first level, and the second level is you have to be. It has, it has to be relevant to you that the neshama is is in a rarefied dimension. You see, the problem is like this. Let's try to let's try to make this plain. The problem is that our bodies, why do we find that a person, if I tell you that on Yom Kippur your soul is free and the body doesn't speak in, at all, there's no physical sensation, you're, trying, you're completely above that. And you say to me, but I don't feel that. Why don't we feel that? The reason is because we live in our bodies. We live in our bodies. When we separate ourselves from our bodies, we remain with the body. Let's try and get this plain. Let's go back to the beginning. When Adam was created, Adam or Ishan, he was created in such a way that the body was completely and utterly disciplined. There was no problem with the body. The body was only a loyal vessel, a vehicle that didn't speak at all. Some of the deeper sources say, if you want to picture this, the picture of him, picture of Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, the picture of them was something like, the best way to imagine it is to imagine the exact polar opposite of what we look like now. The way we look now is entirely body, completely body. Look at a human being, you see a body. That's why this generation thinks that we are nothing other than slightly more or less developed guerrillas, chimpanzees, whatever it is. They're quite right. You look at the body, that's what you see. Where do you see the humanity? Where do you see the spirituality of a human being? If you look very carefully, there's a glow on the face. It's called ziva panim. There's something in the hands also. There's something in the vertical structure, vertical stature of it. But there's something on the face. That's why in Hebrew, the word face is panim. Panim in Hebrew means outside and inside. Pnim. Amazing thing. In English, the word "face" means the outer face, a facet or a face. In Hebrew, the same word that means out means in. Amazing thing. Actually, the eye is also like that. The deepest part of the face is the eye. Eye in Hebrew, ayin. Ayin in Hebrew means the place where inside comes outside. You know that the word ayin, the eye in Hebrew, literally means inside going outside. A maayan is a spring. Ein hamayim, a maayan is a place where the hidden underground water bursts forth into the revealed world. That's what the eye is. Because of that part of the face that most deeply represents what's inside, outside. The way we look is, you see the body. You look very carefully, there's a faint echo, just the faintest glow on the face How faint is it? It's the difference between a face that's alive and a second after life has ended. It's very hard to see. You could never measure that. Adam, when he was created, looked exactly the opposite. When you looked at him, all you saw was the incandescent spirituality. And if you looked very carefully, you could make out the wisp of a body surrounding it. That's how he looked. What happened? He brought the world down. (coughs) brought the world down into physicality by doing what he did, ingesting the world, taking it in, out of the world, brought it into himself on all the levels. And the result became that the, that the dominance became reversed. The dominance when he was created was his mind and his neshama and his spirit was all that there was. The, the body was only the wisp of a vessel, just enough to contain that light. And we have now become almost all body, which is the faintest wisp of a soul, that you may one day make some contact with. You know, the best, the best thing you can do, when the Torah speaks about his consciousness when he was created, he thought of himself as pure and good and spiritual. That's all he was. The way the Torah denotes that is that when the lower self spoke, it spoke as an external being, a serpent. It didn't speak from within, it spoke from without. The serpent appeared and said, you should taste the fruit, do this, do that. It was an external being, because there was no internal component that spoke of evil or the body. But after he sinned, the first person becomes the body. You know, the Gemara says that the, your Yetzirah, your, your negative, your lower, your lower materialistic and bodily element, is like a visitor who walks past in the street. A moment later stands on the doorstep like a beggar. A moment after that he's a guest in your house, and before you know it, he's taken over. He's taken over. And if you li- you're lucky to be a guest. Most times you're way out on the street, begging, starving. If you're at least a guest in your own... And how do you see that? Because the way we think of ourselves. The me, the I, is always first person body. It's always like that. It's very humiliating, but that's the way we think about ourselves. When, when there's something luscious and delicious and bodily that appeals to you, how does your how does your consciousness grasp it? As me, my, mm, I, I'd like that. Mm, that looks tasty. I, me, <laughs> I, I would like that. And how does your spirituality and your conscience speak to you? It says, you know, you shouldn't, you. And usually the voice is more, I'd like that, and the conscience says, excuse me, you, <laughs> you shouldn't. Often. From, from left stage someplace is this very thin voice in the second person reminding you of conscience. That's very humiliating. We have been invaded. You have to understand this. Have, we, we and our culture we've been so deeply invaded that you, wouldn't, you won't even believe me. Because we think about ourselves so intimately, so deeply, so pervasively in the first person body that we can't even relate to this idea. But we've been taken over. We've been invaded. The first person, that means your sense of identity. Who you are is Your body. That means your primary interest in life is your, is your pleasures, your bodily well-being, how you feel. And your mind is a slave. Your mind and spirit is purely a slave to make sure your body's happy. That's a complete travesty. That's a reversal of the dominance that a human being was created for. You're supposed to be a mind that is dominant, a neshama. And your body's supposed to be a slave feeding into the neshama what it needs. But look at our culture. Look at the world around you. Look at the world around you. Is it a world that's driven by spirit? and the body's a loyal servant. It's not like that. It's a world that appeals to the body, and the pleasures of the body, and the mind is, 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 is tuned to serve the body. Incidentally, even those things out there that purport to sell spirituality are there to make you feel good. They're not a sense of, of service and going beyond the self. Even those things. <coughs> it isn't other the institutions that cater to the body. The ones that cater to the mind are also feeding the body. Even the deeper treachery. Yeah, the in, yeah, and Yom Kippur, yeah, a person who have views the world that way is not going to feel this transcendent Yom Kippur. He's not going to be 364. That's a 365 individual. First of all, you need the practicality. You have to step out of your body. And you have to do it by, by carefully observing the laws of the day. You Now, like wash your finger on Yom Kippur. No attention to the body. Doesn't, you don't feed the body. You step out of the body. And secondly, you have to work on the mind too. The mind has to become a mind that for one day a year can think of itself in the first person as mind, as neshama, as spirit. Can you imagine the travesty of a person who fasts all day? Does the work, fasts all day, doesn't wear shoes. And all he can think about is the sore feet, and the sore back, and the stomach, and the grumbling, and mud a tragedy, tragedy. It's supposed to be a day of elation, of spirituality, where you're not hindered by the body, where it doesn't bother you on that day. Because on a day like that, you can come to grips with who you really are, what your real agenda is. And that's why it's a day of Chuvah. Chuvah means coming back to yourself. Teshuvah doesn't mean repentance, it means return, it means coming back to who you are. Let's take it one step further. You know, Yom Kippur has two characteristics. It's the day of ultimate tshuva, of atonement, of, of repentance, forgiveness, atonement, and it's the day of the giving of the Torah. You know that. Moshe Ben went up the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights, and came down with the Torah the second time. The first time, the first tablets had been broken. The second time, he came back with the second tablets that were never broken, that remained. So you have an interesting confluence of events. On this day, the Jewish people were forgiven, right? The concept was they were they incurred a, a, a decree of destruction. Hashem said, Herak me many, leave me, he said to Moshe, but, yeah, which means, and I will destroy them. That was a decree. He said to Moses, leave me, Herak me many, leave hold of me, Hashem said, and I will destroy them. Vash I will destroy them. And on this day, we were forgiven from that decree of annihilation, and the second tablets were given, as part of that. You have to ask a question, what's the connection here? What is atonement and being forgiven so that your life is spared? What is the the connection with giving the Torah? (coughs) But there's an amazing connection here. There are many layers, of course. But the first layer is that the giving of the Torah and Tshuva go together because Tshuva means going back to Torah. That's what it means. Torah is a description of the world, of essence, of reality. Torah is not a document that sort of comments on the world. The Torah is the source of reality. It defines the world. The Torah manifests, projects itself into the world. The way the Torah says, that's the way the world is. It's a tragic error to think that the Torah describes the world. The Torah is written before the world. The world describes the Torah. What's on the film does not reflect what's on the screen. It causes what's on the screen. The Torah is the film. The world is the screen. The Torah was written 2,000 years before the world was created, whatever that means. And it projects itself into the fabric of reality. That's the world we experience. Going back to Torah means going back to the correct objective definition of reality. And in personal terms, it means going back to yourself. On Yom Kippur, you're supposed to discover where you are written in the Torah. You know, the Shlosh says that the word Yisrael spells Yesh, Shishim, Rebo, Yos, Yesh, Those six letters, Yisrael, Israel spells, there are 600,000 letters in the Torah. What does that mean? That there are 600,000 root souls, each of them, you, you, attached to a root, a Jewish soul root, and that's a letter in the Torah. Going back to your letter in the Torah, as it were, that's why when we finish our tefillahs, we say our name. When we finish the prayer, you know, the Amidah, the central work of the, of the prayer, we say our name. We say, the first, we say the verse in the Torah that begins with the first letter that your name begins with, and ends with the letter your name ends with. That's your clue, your hint. that your beautiful, subtle, spiritual hint to where you're located in Torah. Because that's, that's, who, that's who you are, in essence. Chuvah means going back to the Torah definition of self. The two are intimately connected. It's not, and therefore, the day of giving the Torah is the, exactly the day of going back to what it is that you should be. It's your root in the objective definition of reality. What does it mean in practical terms? It means that you should see yourself as you actually are. That, that is what's so frightening and humiliating and liberating about the day. The rest of the year, you don't see yourself as you are. You see yourself in your body. In your body. The first issue is how, how am I perceived? How do I look? And how do I think? I think the way I need to think to make my body look the way it should look. Yom Kippur's one day you don't think like that. Yom Kippur's one day when you can see who you really are, your inner agenda, freed from the constraints and facade and illusion of the body. You have to work on that. You have to work on it by distracting the soul from the body. And then you have to work by distracting the soul from its own trap of seeing itself incorrectly. A person who does that work is guaranteed that a Yom Kippur, the body will not speak. You make that effort, you observe the laws correctly and you, you redefine who you are that your internality is primary and the externality is irrelevant it's been dropped off and shared with the body. At that moment you get again a clarity in who you really are. It can be very humiliating. it can also be whats well, probably worse very boring, extremely boring to so the vast empty echo. But it's very liberating as they begin to get a vision of who it is that you are you know how painful it is to lift yourself out of your body and discover that there's actually nothing there? Because all you really are is what you invest in your body. It's a tragedy. The real tragedy is that if you die that way, if you die that way, the Ramam says before you die you have to do chiva And when he talks about doing chiva before dying, he says be careful. Don't only do chiva for your sins. That he discusses in another chapter. But before you die you have to do chiva for your character traits, for your... Yeah, That means if if you're a person who's internally angry or internally frustrated or internally jealous, even if you've never expressed that, that means you're a completely saintly spiritual individual externally. You never miss a step, never miss a beat, never offend anyone, you always respond correctly, but inwardly you have certain unpleasant character traits. That's a remarkable stage of of development, that a person never makes an error externally, but internally you see things negatively, you see things jealously, you lack inner serenity, During life, you can be a perfect individual that way. The problem is when you die, and you're utterly alone, all you experience then is what your consciousness and what your character really is. That's all you are. That's all you are. That's why the Gemara says that each individual in the next world is alone. (coughs) Completely alone. Completely. From this perspective. There are other perspectives. From this particular perspective, each of us in the next world is completely and utterly alone. I mentioned before, as you know, husband and wife are bonded into one eternally. You know. We all know it's good news. For some of us, it's problematic for others. <laughs> but, apart from that male-female connection, which is really one soul, apart from that, you're alone. And being alone with yourself here you know, for a long, long time. Since mitzvahs, and avarice, that's already, that's, that's being worked out. But who you actually are, that's your ecstasy. You're, the ecstasy of being in that world is experiencing what you've become through the e- effort that you invested to become it. But the agony is experiencing what you didn't become and could have and should have. And if you're a person who's unpleasant to be with and you're all you have to be with, at best it's extremely boring. And at worst it can be a a hell. And therefore you need internal correction. Yom is not only for the work of how you treated this person in this relationship and that. There's also a relationship with self that comes first. On the contrary, in Jewish terms, we regard the relationship with self as being Primary. In the non-Jewish world, if you ask, do a small survey, ask, do a small survey and research what the general secular world defines as being a good person, and you'll almost certainly get the answer, the definition is do good unto others. Definitely, it's not the Jewish definition. Our definition of a good person is long before do good unto others, is be good unto yourself. That means within yourself you have to be a somebody. You have to be a competent and, and serene and... If you think about it for a moment, what are you worth in relationship to someone else if you're not worthy within yourself? What do you offer me in a relationship when you come to me with your you own? Know, if I define myself entirely in how I relate to you, but there's nothing, no content to me, what am I worth to you? And therefore we begin not with do good unto others, we begin with be, be someone within yourself. And the ultimate expression of that is the person leaves this world, there is only the internal consistency, the internal experience of what you are. And therefore you have to correct not only your behavior, you have to correct your inner being as well. Yom Kippur is a day where you come face to face with that inner being. The distractions of your facade and the illusion and how you see it and how the body speaks and how the body demonstrates itself and projects itself, the body, the emotions, there's is, is a potential, there's an ability to switch that off on Yom Kippur. Let's go one step further. There's a deeper secret here as well. This is a, completely inexpressible, but let's... It's worth an attempt. It's worth an attempt. On Yom Kippur, you can get up to a level that is literally impossible. You know, just to begin to approach this. You know, we say Yud Gimbo Bidus We say the 13 attributes. Ashem, hashem, Hashem, Keil, Racham, Wachan, etc. Hashem, Hashem are the first two. Actually, 15. The 13 attributes and Hashem, Hashem introduced them. And we say it again and again and again. We say every day for a month or some of us for a few days before Rosh Hashanah, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur itself we say again and again. At the end, the Illa, we come to a climax, we say them over and over and over. What is the meaning of these? What is these three, what are these 13 middas? Again, we can't go into them in detail now, but just, these things come from a place that is so high. The the place that these, in the the Kabbalistic description of where these 13 middas come down from is... In a place that's almost almost forbidden to speak about. They come from so high that they can lift you into a world of impossibility. When the Jewish people were about to be destroyed, and I stand carefully, Hashem said to Moshe, Leave me, leave me. As it were, you're holding on to me, you hold my coattails, leave them. God Himself said, I'm destroying the Jewish people. And Moshe, of course, that great shepherd, uh, took care of us and takes care of us, he heard the words, Leave me, leave me. He thought, ah, I'm holding. So he held. He saw in those words, "Leave me," an invitation. Yeah, why does Hashem speak that way? If he means hold on and beg and plead for the Jewish people, why does he say "leave"? Why does he say "leave me"? Listen, there's a deep secret, an amazing secret. This could more than save your life. His loyal servant is standing there, and Hashem says to him, "The Jewish people have forfeited their lives. There's a decree that they'll now be destroyed. I'll save you. I'll make a new nation from you." Heref me Leave me. I will Now destroy the Jewish people. What he really wants is for Moshe to hold on and to say, you can't do that. It's not right. What will the Egyptians say? What will these say? Etc. Hell, debate, debate, negotiations, and eventually God says, okay, I've forgiven as you have said. As you say, I forgive. And he negotiated our forgiveness and he was given the Torah a second time and he brought it down. Why does God deal with people that way? If he wants him to hold on and plead and reach that level, why does he say leave? With a sort of an oblique reference to, if I tell you to leave, it means you're holding, and therefore you've got a path. There's an amazing secret here. These Yudimul Midas Arachim, these reach into a place where you could survive, connected to that place, even when not only is it impossible to survive, but when He Himself has said it's impossible. Let's get this clear. There's a level that a person can reach which is complete personal disintegration. Complete hopelessness, disintegration, nothing left at all spiritually. Complete self-destruction. Literally, incorrectly. From there there's no return. From there there's no return. You know the Maral says that the word Teshuvah is based on the root Shav. Shav in Hebrew is Atbash. You know Aleph, Taf, Bet, Shin, Gimel, Resh. It's the second of the Atbash combinations. Shav is Shin, the second last letter of the alphabet. And base is the second letter. Shav means you can go from the second last back to the second. Return. So the Maral asks, why is it not from the top to the aleph? Do the job properly. Go from the end back to the beginning. And I says, you can't do that. Because if you reach the end, there's no one left to go back. If you reach complete utter disintegration, you reach the top, there's no one left to go back. And if you've not left anything to go back to, there's no aleph. There's no there's no wisp of memory of spirituality of some relationship of. There's no. You can go from the shin back to the base. Yudim minas rachamim means you can go beyond chiver. Beyond chiver means you can go from a tough, where there's been complete not just disintegration. There's been such hopeless disintegration that the creator of the world testifies that there's no hope for you. From there you can reconstruct and go back. How? By reaching up into this level of impossibility. It's a remarkable. It's an inexpressible thing. Where do you see this? Well, the first example is, Hashem said to him, here's a decree of destruction, leave me. Moshe Benne holds on, and Hashem says, you know, since you <coughs> importune me this way, here's what to do. And the Medrash says, Hashem covered himself with a talus, like a like a, like a chazan. And he said, these are the words you say when you're in a hopeless situation, and I will never turn these words back unre- unresponded, unrequited. And he said, Hashem okay, he taught Moshe how to say these 13 minutes of and Moshe Reine brought that secret down, and he said them. And Sarachti Gid means I forgive you, as you have said. Means as you have said these thirteen attributes, which means that he taught him a secret. Hashem Himself taught Moshe a secret that is able to generate resurrection, salvation, at a time when He has announced openly that it's become impossible. That level of impossibility, and the result, of course, is. He does this, and we are the decrees overturned. We are saved. not only saved, we're given Torah again after having broken it. You know what that means? To receive the Torah the first time itself goes beyond human expression that he should give us a Torah. But what do you say to the fact that we took it and broke it, rejected it, broke it, and he gives it back again after its destruction? Do you know what that means? This, yeah, If you are located in Torah, That's your essence and the definition of your reality. And you've broken that. You've broken those tablets. You do not exist anymore. Only fragments. They can get given again. On Yom Kippur, the Torah gets given again. Your own source, in essence. Your own definition of reality. This is a day when that can be reconstructed. That's miraculous in the miraculous. You know another example. You know, there was an individual called Ache. We can't go into the whole story now. Ache was one of the greatest sages of all time on the level of being able to resurrect the dead. We talking about one of the sages of the Mishnah. And he went he went wrong. He went wrong. He became a deliberate denier and a heretic, and he went wrong. He went wrong. One of the greatest, he was one of four people who went into the ultimate orchard of spiritual wisdom in the higher worlds. He was damaged. He went wrong. He went wrong. The Gemara says he was so was judged so negative, so evil that he did not merit to get into Gehenna. He didn't have what it took to get into the dimension that we call hell. To be burnt. Yeah. Rebbe Meir, he's told me, he had a daven for him had a pray that his Rebbe should be admitted to Gehenna. In other words, it wasn't even worth being corrected. And after that prayer they saw smoke began to issue from his grave. It was for many years, it was many decades, and I think it was, said I could get him out. And he done for him and stopped. When Acher went wrong, people said to him, Why don't you do tshuva? You can repent, correct yourself. The Torah correct. has a mechanism, a Jew can correct himself. He said, Not me, I've gone too far. Because I said, I heard a voice. And the voice, you know whose voice? And the voice said, Shuvu banim shavavavim. Return wayward children. Chutz mi Except for him, there's no hope for him. I heard him say that. He said, I heard a voice. You know, we're not talking about a person with an imagination. We're talking about a person who had been <coughs> in direct contact. He had explored those worlds. He had made re- almost face-to-face contact with that reality. And I, I heard a voice saying, wayward children, you come back to me. Except him. He's hopeless. When I heard that, I knew it was complete. If he tells me it's hopeless for me, he rejects me, he says I'm beyond repentance, beyond correction. What hope do I have? And therefore he left. So Rabbi says, in the name of the Baal Shem Tov, that when Hashem, listen carefully to this amazing, amazing, uh, frightening beyond words. When Hashem announced that you are an exception and there is no hope for you, He wasn't declaring a fact, He was issuing a challenge. He was saying to him, leave me, leave! Meaning, you are still holding. Acha heard the side of leaving, he didn't hear the fact that if you have to leave, it means you are still holding. This wasn't, the, this wasn't information. Hashem wasn't declaring a fact that you are hopeless. He was issuing a challenge. I'm challenging you to come back from a hopeless position. That's why He informed Him that He was hopeless. He spoke to Him. They can all return. There's hope for them. For you there's no hope. What was that? That wasn't an announcement of fact. That was a challenge. What I want from you is the greatness of heart and spirit. That inexpressible courage that it takes to reconstruct from a completely, not not hopeless, from a post-disintegrated state. Had he done that, he would have been accepted. When there's no free, you have understand this. When there's no free choice left, the sources say this. Pharaoh, for example, Paroy, Hashem denied his free choice, took away hardened his heart, no more ability to. Had he intended, had he made the effort, he could have come back from there. He could have come back from there. Ah, it's impossible. Hashem took away his freedom of choice. You know the midrashim say that the same thing happened to the Jewish people. You know, the Jewish people got together on Hara Carmel, the, mount, the mountain of the Carmel. Elijah the prophet gathered them. And, and there was an ordeal. There was an ordeal. The Jews had to choose between idolatry and the, the, the priests of the idolatrous practices and choose between them and the real source. And there was a whole miraculous event. And the Jews, people of that generation, they declared Hashem, Hashem, the transcendent entity that's beyond human understanding, is in fact a divine presence in the world, and that was there. The Quran says that this is exactly parallel to Sinai. The amazing thing. The Gemara says, the Medrash says that Moshe and Eliyahu are parallel. Moses and Elijah are exactly parallel. Exactly parallel. They're both from the tribe of Levi. They're both prophets. They both <coughs> gathered the Jews on a mountain. Many, many, many parallels. Standing on the Ahara Kalma was a repeat performance of standing on Mountain Torah, but there was one difference. The difference is that receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai was miraculous, divine, transcendent. But it happened. Standing on, the, on Carmel to receive, why was it repeated? Hashem has to do the same thing twice. This teaches a completely different lesson. The lesson is that now you, you have an opportunity to do it when it has become impossible. Do Elias said to Hashem, they cannot accept you. Because you've, you've hardened their hearts. He said to Hashem, You have turned their hearts back. You're asking these people to see you and accept you and relate to you. But you've made it impossible for them. You have hardened their hearts. What kind of test is that? You stand there on the mountain, Hashem wants you to relate to him, and he's made it impossible, he's taken away your free choice. You know, we're not talking about a minor disadvantage. We're talking about having your ability to choose snuffed out. That's what it means to have your heart hardened. This was an opportunity to go beyond that. And when they did that, they revealed that it's possible not just to receive the Torah in normal, call it normal circumstances, but to be able to receive the Torah when it's becoming impossible. That's what was revealed there. And there are many other examples. Many examples. There's an example of Rebbe ben Dodaya. He was an individual who had also disintegrated entirely. It happened to be in the area of connection with women. He had completely lost his all sense of s- self-respect, and, and there, was n- there was nothing left. Nothing left. Ultimately, the Gemara says he heard about a woman someplace over seven oceans. A woman who took a bag of gold. Uh, he made the journey, he took the gold. When he was with her, the Gemara says, a certain incident occurred. And she said something. She said to him, for you there is no hope. You have so disintegrated. You've sunk so low. You have so exchanged. You've so sold out. You've so perverted your purity that there's no hope for you. Not that you've fallen low. You've fallen below the possibility of return. Sigrimon so says that he appealed, the, the Medrash says he started, he appealed to the world. He went to the sun. The sun said, I can't intercede. I have my own issues. The mountains refused to intercede. They had their own problems. Eventually he said, dova tole It only depends on me. He went and sat on a mountaintop put his head between his knees and he, he cried with a depth of expression of desire to return to purity even though he had been informed reliably that it was impossible, that he managed. It cost his life as it happened. cost his life. Yeah, His neshama left him in that effort. The <coughs> Maral says, you know, there's nothing insignificant in Torah. He climbed a mountain. He put his head between his knees. What does that mean? It means a return to the fetal position. That's what it means. Everyone says that a fetus, a child, he's folded over his head between his knees. He has, that means he had to go back to who he was before he began. He had, not, had to deconstruct prior to the stage that he's called the beginning. But he did it. It can be done. He meant that much. Your Kippur is an amazing thing. It's not a day that you see A day for chiver You're talking about something far beyond it. You're talking about an ability to do chiver Chubha when chiver is becoming possible You're talking about a day where it becomes Possible, use that word. To reconstruct pieces that are not only disintegrate, but the pieces aren't there anymore. That's the meaning of Yud Gimel, um, Mira Sarah. Hashem Hashem, those two names again will take a long time to go into in detail. Those two names mean the name of Rachamim, Hashem's name of kindness, of, of, of giving extensions and second chances, together with the name of Din. Those two names before person sins and the same name after. Meaning you know what that means? Hashem Hashem, we say the name twice before we begin the yud Gimel Midas. You know, it means like this, Hashem, that is your name before a person has sinned, and then the same name after, which means that there's no change. So, Ani Hashem Loshinisi, I have not changed. But of Le and you have not disintegrated. Just like I do not change, no matter what you do, you will never go lost. That means, even when Midas Adin, that means the, the strict quality of justice means you have forfeited all, all right to exist. There's another quality that justice itself, that midasadin, requires ability to reconstruct. And therefore the same yeah, the same name, the name of kindness and, and rachamim, <laughs> both before and after that disintegration. Okay, there's a lot more to say, but let's just summarize. We're talking here about a day of opportunity, tshuva, the work of going back in the self. Of course one has to do the basic mitzvah of tshirva, obviously we've discussed that in the past, that's the vidu, you have to confess, say what it is you've done. You have to say an expression of remorse and shame, you have to say that. You have to say that you will not do this again, that's very important to note by the way. You know, in the in the, in the maqsa you will not find that. If you're not going to say your own personal expression of your own <coughs> personal problems, saying what's written in the matzah is not good enough, I'm afraid. Because what's written over there is, we have sinned, we've done this, we've done that full expression of remor- of, of uh, confession of what we've done. And there's plenty of expression of remorse and regret and shame, but you will not find a statement that says that you'll not do this again. You cannot do chiva unless you've added that third component. Why is it not written in the, in the service? Why was it not written in? There's a very obvious reason. The reason is that all of our fillers, all of our prayers are expressed in the plural, always. We never single out. Know, the, 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 the construction of the tefillah is always plural, always us together. That's the only place we have hope. But when you're speaking in the plural, we can say we have sinned. We can certainly say that together. We can certainly say we all feel shame and remorse. But how can I say you won't do it again? How can I say you won't do it again? I can't say that. You have to say that. And therefore they couldn't have written that into the words. You can't say that communally. Only I can decide what I will do. I can't decide what you will do. And if each of us has to say that. It's not good enough say. So you have to say the communal video. Good. Personal, your own. You have to do that too remorse, shame, regret, you have to do that, go through the details. But then you have to add in the fact that I'm changing my life. I'm moving in a different direction. And when you feel obstructed, it's become impossible. I've done this so many times before and I keep... Most of us are struck by the same problem. You know, it's even more humiliating than the fact that you that you sin and disintegrate and let yourself down is the fact that you keep doing the same thing again and again. It's like married couples, you know, they argue about the same thing for 35 years. They've been arguing about the same, the same words at the same time. You'd think they'd put a little spice and variety into their marriage, you know, and think about something new to argue about. That's how we are married to our lower, lower self. We have the same problem and we promise we won't do DNA. You know, and then the next week you do the same thing again and the same thing. You think it would be a little? It's a little immature, falling into the same trap again and again. He's tripped you up so many times before, and you keep falling into it. It's impossible to climb out of that trap. Yom Kippur's a day if you take it seriously, lift yourself out of the body correctly. That's the beginning, beginning of the work. But not just lift yourself out. Lift yourself out and forget the body, transcend the body. Not lift yourself out. <laughs> and worry about the body. And once you're in the zone of neshama, you're in that meditation, in that level of meditation of mind. Should be in a level where it doesn't even feel tiring to stand for hours, or not eat for. All. Then the work has to be: this is me, not this is me longing to get back to my body because my body's where I am and I feel uncomfortable because I'm not at home. You have to feel this is who I really am. That he's a tenant. He down there, he's a temporary being that will one day be shed as as external. If you can achieve that, just a moment of that redefinition, just one moment of redefining, this is who I actually am, this is what's going to last, not not that. The body's going to disintegrate with time, sooner or later. The genuine self is this one in here. At least the work of realizing it. And then there's a question of choosing a new direction, of cleansing that, no matter how empty it may be, or how disintegrated that's what Yom means. And therefore we say, Yudimu misarachamim. This uh, idea of 13 means that they're all one. It's Hashem's oneness again. We're going back to source. We're going back to Torah. It's a day of receiving the Torah when it's already been lost, when it's been broken, it's given again miraculously, after being rejected. It's a day when He issues an instruction, and even when His own instruction, even when He Himself, as it were, personally tells you that you're hopeless. That's not a statement of hopelessness. That's a challenge... You know what's required from a Jew? A Jew has to live on a level where what's possible and not, not, not possible is not, not relevant. That's what it means. The basic requirement of being a Jew is that you have the, the audacity, the raw courage to be able to lift yourself out of a, a post-hopeless situation. The Alt of Kelm used to say, ask not if a thing is possible, ask only if it's necessary. Possible, impossible is not relevant to me. Is it necessary? Do it. Ah, it's impossible. What's that got to do with you? What does that have to do with you? Yitzhak, Isaac, the first Jew, the first Jew was born here yeah, from a Jew, sacrificed. He was sacrificed. His ash remains on his back. Yeah, the matrix says he was sacrificed. Burnt. After all, Yitzhak, his ashes remain on his back. And he climbed off and walked off to get married. Completely dichotomous, impossible. That's who Yitzhak is. He's a person who at the one and the same time he's burnt and transcends into a higher world, he leaves this world, and at the same time he walks off. begins his life as the father of the Jewish people. The Ari says Yitzchak spells Ketzchai, death in life. That's who the Jewish people are. We begin where the impossible ends. We begin where despair ends. That's who we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be here to cope where it's possible. We're supposed to begin where it gets impossible. And therefore, the focus for Yom Kippur is to be, is to be. First of all, the practicalities. We need that. We are trapped in our bodies have to lift ourselves out, then there has to be the work of lifting the mind out of the mind, the mind out of the body, in, 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 in raw consciousness terms, then there has to be the work of realizing that you're relating here to something that far beyond which, which is spiritually possible. You're talking about something deeper than the giving of the Torah, you're talking about something that is after the Torah becomes impossible and to be rejected and broken, it gets given again. That's the possibility of Yom Kippur. For one who relates, for one who lives in his body, it's not going to be a different day not going to be a different day, not going to be a new start, not going to be anything But if it's a day, if it's lived as a day that is one out of 365, that is different than all the other 64, it's lived that way, it's lived that way in body, it's lived that way in mind, then it could be a possibility of genuine reconstruction.